Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18 says, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. In John chapter 17, verses 20 and 21, Jesus prayed for this church throughout the ages, and he said, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, these alone being the apostles, but for all those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. We stand for this unity, and we make a plea for this unity, that all religious people will come together in one body, hearkening to the call of one spirit, having one hope of one calling, submitting to one Lord, believing one faith, going through one baptism and honoring and worshiping the one God and Father of all who is in all, above all, and through all. We stand for this and we make this plea as we look at the divided religious world with denominationalism and Catholicism and Protestantism and all the divisions in modern Christianity. We ask, can we not simply be united? And yet as we make this plea, this cry for unity does at times ring hollow to those who hear it. Because it does not take them long as they examine churches that have the name Church of Christ to find that among those of us who make this plea for unity, there is in fact division. There are differences that occur in churches that have this same fundamental plea. Let's just get back to the Bible. Let's just do what God says, being non-denominational, anti-denominational in fact, baptizing folks into the body of Christ. This is, as was mentioned earlier, the second Sunday night of the month, and of course what we do on this night is we do answer questions that have been submitted, whether by members or guests or others that receive our sermons, and tonight we want to deal with the question. As we look at churches of Christ, what are the differences? And why? Now, we as members of Christ's church and dealing with the various issues that have arisen among others who make the same plea that, that we have, we've come up with rather extensive labeling systems to describe the varying kinds of churches that exist. But what kind of churches are out there? We talk about institutional churches and non-institutional churches. We may use terms like sound, Annie, no class, one cup, instrumental, conservative, liberal. We've got all kinds of labels that we have given churches today to describe the differences that are among us. However, if all we did was get into those practical differences, I don't think that we would understand the real issues that divide. I do want to say something about the way this question is worded and the way we might often word it, because I'm a little leery answering it that way. Because those who hear this question, whether Christians or otherwise, are more than likely going to hear it from a denominational mindset. What are the differences among churches of Christ? You see, in our day and age, because of the denominations and because of the setup that most churches have as far as their organization, we hear that and we apply a certain meaning to that that is not necessarily the case. You see, there are a lot of people that believe 
that every congregation that has the sign above their door that says Church of Christ, that they are in some way affiliated or organized along with us here at the Franklin Church. And that is not the case. At the same time, there are those who believe that if a church does not have the name Church of Christ on the door, then it is in no way affiliated with us. And that is not necessarily the case either. We've got to understand this. We need to recognize that we are an independent, autonomous congregation. And in no way are we denominationally, governmentally, or in other way associated or organized with any other congregation. We don't have that kind of connection with anybody else. But secondly, what we need to recognize is that if a church makes the same plea to go back to the Bible, to avoid denominationalism, to just do what God says and baptizes people for the remission of sins into Christ, then they are our brethren no matter what name is on their door. And we have to understand that. And so when I ask the question, what are the differences among churches of Christ, I am not necessarily saying, what are the differences between all the congregations that have a sign out front or a letterhead that reads Church of Christ? I am saying, what differences exist among people who are a part of Christ's church because they have been baptized into Christ, as they've gathered together in local congregations and practiced different things? What differences exist there? Please understand that. That's our question tonight, and that's what we're going to be dealing with. When we look at the differences among churches, we myriad of practical things, but it all comes down to about five major differences. Authority. How to establish Bible authority. This, just as it defines the major difference between us and denominational churches, this one thing really is probably the major division that occurs among Christians. How do we establish authority from the Word of God? When we look at the differences, we might notice several things. First of all, there are some who would suggest that finding authority is not what we need to do. But here at the Franklin Church, we turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. We read verses 16 and 17. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, it reads, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. What does this text tell us the Scripture does? This text tells us that the Scripture equips us for every good work. It provides equipping or it tools us. It gives us the tools we need, the equipping or the authority to know what is a good work and what is not a good work. But there are some today who, while they claim we ought to go back to the Bible, miss this verse. And instead of saying that we need to find equipping to know that something is a good work, they will suggest that as long as something is not specifically condemned, we're allowed to do it. And because of that, we have a church such as this congregation that will not get involved in sending our funds that we collect in the treasury to support schools or orphans' homes or colleges or put them in missionary societies. Why? Because we can't find any equipping for those things in the Bible. The churches that say, well, we don't find them condemned, they'll support those things. And you see, we find a difference. And when we look at that spectrum that we most often call liberal and conservative, we find the difference right here. Because you see, those that we would more classically call 
conservative-minded, are the ones who would say, if the New Testament equips us and authorizes us to do it, then it is a good work. Those who are more liberally minded would say, if I believe that it's a good work, then certainly the New Testament authorizes it. Do you see the difference? One says, I've got to find it in the Scripture first. The other says, if I'm convinced it's good, surely God believes it's good also. And so the church can do it. And so we find differences because of that difference. Secondly, we recognize that as we look at the Bible, it authorizes things in three different ways. It authorizes by direct statement. In Luke chapter 6 and verse 46, Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I say? Clearly, if Jesus has said we can do it, if we can go into the Scripture and it says we can do it, then we can do it. We understand that. And I don't think anybody disagrees over that. Further, we recognize from passages like 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 1, where Paul says, Be imitators of me as I also imitate Christ we recognize that we can go back into the New Testament and we can see what the early Christians did and if it was approved what they were doing, then we can do it as well. I don't know that anybody would disagree with that. If we look at New Testament Christians and churches accomplishing something with God's approval, then we can accomplish it and work it with God's approval. But the third thing that we think about is there's a lot of discussion over this. And that's the idea of necessary inference. That is, that there are some things that the Bible authorizes without specifically stating them. Because there are actions and works that we have to do in order to accomplish the things that are stated or are exemplified. Let me give you an example of authorizing something by necessary inference. If you look in Romans chapter 10, beginning at verse 13, Paul said, in Romans 10 and verse 13, he goes back to the Old Testament, he finds a passage in Joel where it says, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. But then notice what he does in verse 14. How will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Notice the necessary inference. People have got to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. But before they can call, they can't possibly accomplish that work if they don't believe, can they? And they can't possibly believe unless they've heard. And they can't possibly hear unless they've been told. And nobody's going to be telling unless we're sending people out to tell. That's necessary inference. You can't get this thing without the other. And so by that, we recognize a great deal of things that we have to do and are authorized in order to accomplish things that are stated, that are exemplified specifically. Further, there is disagreement regarding the understanding of generic and specific authority. We recognize here that when God specifies a particular action, everything else in that class of action is ruled out. For instance, you remember in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 14, God told Noah, build the ark out of what? Gopher wood. What if he had built it out of oak? Would he, be bent, would he have been obeying God? No. See, when God specified gopher, that ruled out everything else. But there were also some things generally authorized or generically authorized. That is a class of things. You see, when God talked to Noah, he said, you build this ark out of gopher wood, but he didn't say build it out of gopher wood in two-by-four planks or in one-by-eight. He just said build it out of gopher wood. So what size planks was Noah allowed to use? 
how was he allowed to get those things to stick together? Now, of course, I know he had to cover the outside with with, uh, with pitch. But how was he supposed to make all those pieces of wood stick together? What size did those wood have, pieces of wood have to be? God didn't tell him. See, that left it up to his discretion how he was going to do it. Now, because there are brethren that disagree over these three ways to establish authority and the understanding of generic and specific authority, there are all manner of practical differences. Those who don't recognize necessary inference as a valid means of establishing Bible authority will often say that we're not allowed to build a building like this. They will often say that we're not allowed to have Bible classes. Secondly, we recognize that folks who do not understand the difference between generic and specific, that's where we start getting the beginning of allowing mechanical instruments of music into the worship to worship our God. Because they don't understand that when God said sing, that ruled out every other form of music to worship him. And so you see how the major difference in understanding authority has produced practical differences in churches. Further, we find out and we understand here at the Franklin Church in Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We recognize that the Old Testament was written for our learning, but we also recognize that it was not written to be our government. It was not written to be our covenant. But rather, in Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 12, when the priesthood is changed, of necessity there takes place a change of the law also. We recognize that there was an Old Testament, and it's written for our learning, but we are no longer under that law. We read Hebrews chapter 8, beginning at verse 6. And it says, but now, in Hebrews 8 and verse 6, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry, by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. We read on down to verse 13 where he says, when he said a new covenant, he's made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So we recognize that we can go back to the Old Testament and we can learn how God deals with a covenant people. But we do not go back to the Old Testament as our covenant to reveal how we are to live as Christians. Now, there are some who don't accept that. And those who don't understand that distinction, but rather go back and use the old law as part of their government as New Testament Christians, will allow different things in worship, like instruments of music. Because certainly they did use that under the old law. We're not under the old law. Those who recognize the distinction will not allow the instruments of music as part of worship because we can't find it authorized by either statement, example, or necessary inference in the New Testament. You see the difference there? So we recognize that if churches and Christians have a different understanding of how to establish authority, what are we going to have? We're going to have difference in practice, some of which cause us to have to be divided because we can't be in fellowship with worship that is not accord with God's will. So the first principle of division is difference regarding how to establish Bible authority. Alright? Number two. The second major difference that we have among brethren is a different understanding of the work and mission of Christ's church. We can summarize the work and mission of Christ's church 
In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, Paul, as he's writing to Timothy, he says to him, 1 Timothy 3.15, But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. What is the church's job? What is its mission? What, what defines it? It is the pillar and support of the truth. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Holding the truth up. That's what we do. We hold the truth up. We look in Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10. In Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul writes here again about the church and what was it all about and what was it in God's eternal purpose that the church was all about. In Ephesians 3 and verse 10 it says, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access through faith in him. What do we find from these passages? What's the church's mission? The church's mission is to get the gospel out, to teach folks, to hold up the truth for everybody to see. That is our mission. That is our job. That is our only job. That's why Christ established His church, so that the truth could be held out for all to see, whether on earth or in heavenly places. But some people today have missed it. Some brethren and some churches have lost sight of what the mission and work of Christ's church really is. Let me explain to you what the mission of Christ's church really is not. You can read your New Testament backwards and forwards, and you will never find Christ's church used to accomplish some of the things that churches are used for today. Christ's, the church's mission is not to provide recreation. It is not the church's job to build family life centers, to build gymnasiums. It is not the church's job to provide youth groups that take trips to astral world or to put on plays or to put on concerts. It is not the church's job to provide recreation. It is not the church's job to promote social work. It is not the church's job to run soup kitchens in inner cities. It is not the church's job to run orphans' homes. It is not the church's job to do all manner of social work. That's not why God put His church here. It is not the church's job to provide world relief. It is not the church's job to sponsor medical missionaries to get immunizations to third world countries or to send out missionaries to other countries that are destitute and to build houses for them. That is not the church's job. The church's job is to get the gospel out. It is not the church's job to provide secular education. If you want your kids to learn how to read and write and do math, that's awesome. You take care of it. That's not the church's job. It is not the church's job to support secular education by finances or to run one or even to provide classrooms in their building for one. That is not our job in the church. And it is not our job in the church to promote political agendas. It is not our job to house campaigns. It's not our job to endorse candidates. It's not our job as the church, to do any of those things. 
What is the church's mission? Pillar and support of the truth. Our job is to teach the gospel. That's not to say that you as a Christian can't be involved in politics. That's not to say that you as a Christian can, if you want, send money to somebody who's going to be sending immunizations to some third world country. That's fine, but that's not the church's job. Our job is to teach the gospel, and that is it. And the only exception that we find to that in all of Scripture is that God allowed for the church, His people, and for local congregations from their collection, their treasury, to provide for the benevolent needs of Christians. For instance, we can find in Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, beginning at verse 1 in Acts 6. Now, at this time, while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It's not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we'll devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And so, of course, the seven men were appointed to handle this benevolent need. But that's the only exception that we find. That the church was given authority, congregations were given authority to take care of the benevolent needs of saints. Not of the world in general. That's not our job. Now, here's the interesting thing. Most churches, even among the denominations, would say that that is the mission of the church, to get that gospel out. And yet we see all these churches that are doing all these things that we just said can't be found in the New Testament and is not the mission of the church. How do they do that? Well, they kind of sidestep the issue. What they'll say is, sure, our job, our mission is to get that gospel out. Well, we've got to get these people to the gospel. And so what do we do? Well, we'll have a hot dog supper. And we'll build a fellowship hall, and we'll build, bring people in, and then we'll teach them the gospel. Or we'll get involved in politics, and then get them the gospel as we contact them through that. Or we'll have a school, and we'll get them into the school, and we'll let folks know that we really care about people. And then they'll want to hear what we have to say about the gospel. We've got to draw them in. I want you to look in John chapter 6. John chapter 6 and verse 44. Notice what Jesus says there. In John chapter 6 and verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I'll raise him up on the last day. How do people come to Christ? Not by our secular and material and social draws, but when the Father draws them. You think God needs us to make up ways to draw people to the gospel? I don't think He does. I want you to notice this, though. He goes on in the next verse to tell us how He draws them. It is written in the prophets, they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. How does the Father draw people to the Son? By teaching. Not with food. Not with games, not with entertainment and recreation and education and social work, by teaching. And that's our job. Our job is to get that message out so people can hear from the Father through His Word and be drawn to Christ. And when we miss it on the mission of Christ's church, to that extent, we neglect our job of drawing people to the Savior. We may end up with more people in the building, but we will not end up with more people saved by Christ. And because, folks, 
we make the same fundamental plea, let's just get back to the Bible and let's just do what the Bible says, have a difference over the mission and work of Christ's church. There is division among us and differences. And sometimes we have to be divided because we can't be in fellowship with the works that are not authorized. We've got to follow Christ's mission. First difference, difference over authority. Second difference, difference over the mission and work of Christ's church. The third difference, a difference over understanding of the purpose of worship. Because brethren have a different idea about what worship is all about, we have all kinds of practical differences, all the way from some churches sponsoring children's church to keep the kids out of the parents' hair while they're worshiping, down to people having choirs and solos, to having instruments of music, uh, to having spontaneous outbursts of emotional expression, to saying that we can't have a building and we can't be bigger than 50 and have to meet in somebody's house so that we can have a better horizontal relationship in worship. All these things take place. Why? Because a lot of people have missed it on what God's purpose for worshiping Him is. Look in John chapter 4 and verse 24. In that verse, we find God's purpose for worship. In John chapter 4 and verse 24, the Bible says, God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. What's the purpose of worship? To worship God. To honor and revere and praise and glorify Him. How? In spirit and truth. That is, with our whole being, not just going through the motions, but with our inner man and everything that we have, honoring and praising and glorifying God. And doing it according to the truth, the way He has outlined. You see, our worship is not about providing parents with time away from their kids. Our worship is not about us having strong relationships with one another. Our worship is not about us being able to spontaneously express our emotions. Our worship is not about us getting anything. Our worship is about us giving to God. Now, certainly a lot of those things will take place along with our worship. You'll get something out of it. You will have emotional expression as you sing and you pray. We will draw closer to one another and encourage one another. But those are the happy byproducts of worshiping God properly. Those are not the purpose for worship. And what we learn is when we get the cart before the horse, when we make the byproducts of real worship the goal of worship, then we're going to have all kinds of differences that change the very nature of how we worship our God. And that is exactly what's happening in churches all over the world. Fourth difference. A different understanding regarding the organization of Christ's church. When we look in the New Testament, we find three different levels of organization, if you'll allow me. I'm using that somewhat loosely, but if you'll allow that, three different levels. Universal church, local church, and the individual. And that's it. Nothing in between those things. Universal body, local bodies, and individual Christians. The universal church. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18, Jesus said to Peter, I also say to you that you're Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower. He said, I'm going to build my church. In Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, it says that He, that is the Father, put all things in subjection under His feet, that's Christ, and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him, who fills all in all. There is only one governor, only one governing body, if you will, in Christ's universal church, and that's Christ Himself. He's the head. He's the chief shepherd. He's the president. He's the whatever you want to call it. It's Him and nobody else. Now, here's another interesting thing about this universal church. Here's where a lot of people miss it. The universal church is not the collection of all the congregations that claim to be a church of Christ. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 22. Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 22 says this. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. Now, here we go. You ready to see what the universal church is? Verse 23. To the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The general assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. The firstborn there, brethren, by the way, does not refer to Jesus. Notice that's plural. The firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. He's talking about we as Christians have the the honor and the inheritance of the firstborn, the double blessing that the firstborn gets. We get that from God because we're a part of His church. The universal church is not the collection of all the congregations. It is not a collection of any congregations. The universal church is a collection of all the individual Christians, all the individuals who are enrolled in heaven. That is the universal church. It's not the collection of local churches. And because some people miss that, they'll have local congregations start joining up and doing work together that the Bible never authorized them to do together. Because God never authorized congregations to come together and start setting up some type of organization between the universal and the local church. What about that local church? We find as we read through the Scriptures that Christians in localities, began to gather together. Started in Jerusalem. Right after they became Christians, they all started assembling daily, one mind in the temple, it says in Acts chapter 2. We can find in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 4 that Paul talked about the church in Corinth. He said in 1 Corinthians 5 and verse 4, In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled, they gathered together to worship God and to accomplish the work that God had given them. Which, remember, what? what's the work God gave them as a church? Fill in support of the truth. Hold the truth up. They would gather together. They would assemble to accomplish a common work. They would do so with a common treasury. You look in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. There was work that needed to be done. Paul told them how to raise the money for that. He said in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so do you also. On the first day of every week, each one of you is to put aside and say, that he may prosper, so that no collections be made when I come. They're there having this treasury to accomplish the work, common treasury, under a common oversight. Look in 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. In 1 Peter chapter 5, beginning at verse 1, the Bible reads, Therefore, 1 Peter 5 and 1, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Notice this. Shepherd the flock of God among you 
exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving the examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Notice that there are some that are allotted to the charge of the shepherds. And who is it? The flock that is among you. Not the flock two states over. Not the flock one city over. The flock that is among you. The elders are given authority to shepherd a congregation and the members of that congregation. There is not an elder or a group of elders anywhere by Scripture that have been given the authority to shepherd any work other than a local congregation. That's it. And yet today we have brethren that have missed that. And what they have is churches that would send funds to one eldership. And then that eldership oversees some type of organization that they've established or some type of evangelistic work. And instead of each congregation overseeing how its funds are going to be used and the work that it's going to accomplish, they've set elders up in some place that's now overseeing a work that's beyond the scope that God ever gave them authority to, to oversee. And in reality, when they've done that, they've missed the point of elders anyway. What are elders supposed to be doing? Shepherding the flock. They're not supposed to be organizing a business or running funds to other countries. They're supposed to be shepherding the flock. And that's it. And because churches have missed that, they've changed what churches do, and there are differences. Finally, we have the universal, the local, we have the individual. While the universal church and the local congregations are both made up of individuals, we have to understand that the individuals are not the church. See, one of the problems that we have, as we'll point out, is this building the church? What's the church? It's the what? It's the people. And so suddenly we say, oh, well now if the church is the people, that means I'm the church. No, that's not the case. The universal church, I'm not the, am I the universal church? No, because the universal church is the collection of all Christians everywhere of all times, who are old in heaven, right? Am I a local congregation? Absolutely not. I am an individual Christian. A local congregation is a group of Christians that have agreed to band together to accomplish a common work under common oversight using a common treasury. And that's not me. I'm just one. I'm an individual. And the scripture demonstrates the distinction. If you look, 1 Timothy chapter 5. In 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 16. It says, if in 1 Timothy 5 and verse 16, if any woman who is a believer, there's an individual Christian, if any woman who is a believer has dependent widows, she must assist them. The individual must assist them. Why? And the church must not be burdened so that it may assist those who are widows indeed. You notice this? Here's an individual. So you let the individual do it. Why? So the church won't be burdened. But wait a minute. If the individual is the church, when the individual does it, then the church is burdened. Are you seeing here what's happening? The individual is not the church. Now, there's a real strong reason why we have to understand this. Because there are brethren today having missed this distinction between individuals and congregations will say to us that anything that an individual can do, the local congregation is also authorized to do. And that's just not the case. That is absolutely not the case. Individuals are different from the local congregation. 
just like the local congregation is different from the government. There are things that the government is allowed to do that a local congregation is not allowed to do. There are things that individuals do that the local congregation is not given authority for. Galatians chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. A lot of folks will look at this passage, Galatians 6, 9 and 10. It's written to individuals. It says in verse 8, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we'll reap if we don't grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, some of you say, see, the church is allowed to do anything that we classify as a good work. But this wasn't written to congregations. This was written to individuals. Individuals. And to do good works to all people, but especially to those of the household of faith. We can't just take anything that individuals can do and suddenly say, oh, well, because the church is the people, if people can do this, then the church can do it. That's just not the case. We have to understand the distinction. Universal, local, individual. And because there are differences in understanding on that, there are differences among churches, and sometimes differences which divide because we can't be in fellowship with error and work that is not authorized. Which leads us to number five. And I just mentioned it. It's a different understanding of fellowship. Because of different understandings regarding the Bible's idea of fellowship, there are differences among churches and among brethren. Fellowship, we find in the Bible, was something that was very important to the early church. In fact, if you go to Acts chapter 2, the very first congregation that was established in Acts chapter 2, and verse 42, the Bible says, that these early Christians, this first church, was they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Very important. But what is that? The English word fellowship and the Greek words that are translated fellowship all simply mean to share or partner in something. To the degree that we are sharing in anything, we are having fellowship in that thing. That's how the English word can be used. But when we understand that fellowship simply means to share in something, when we look at Acts 2.42, we find out the early church was devoted to fellowship, we have to ask, well, wait a minute. What was it devoted to sharing in? Because here's the problem that we have today. The modern popular usage of the word fellowship today means to share in what? When we hear people talk about fellowship, what do we know they're doing? Come on, guys. They're eating, aren't they? They're eating. That's exactly it. We're talking about spending time together socially. Why, that's fellowship today. And that's what so many churches are devoted to today. How many folks have we heard in their prayers when we're over at somebody's house say, Dear God, thank you for this meal and time of fellowship. I even heard a religious comedian one time. He talked about church code language. He said, now after the worship service is over, everybody's ready to go do what? We're all ready to go pig out. He said, but nobody's going to say, hey, y'all want to meet at Pizza Hut and pig out. Well, that sounds bad. What do we say? Hey, y'all, you want to go meet at Pizza Hut and have a little fellowship? It's the way it's used today. Is that what the Bible meant? 
Is that what the Bible said? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. In the Bible, in the King James Version, the English word fellowship is used 14 times. The Greek words that are translated in their various forms, translated fellowship, are used 31 times. And not one single solitary instance in the New Testament do we ever find the English word fellowship or the Greek words translated fellowship to describe Christians spending social time together. Not once. Now, did Christians spend social time together? Of course they did. Acts chapter 2, we're already there. We can look in Acts chapter 2 and verse 46. It said, day by day, continue with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. They spent time together socially and secularly apart from what the church was doing. As individuals, they did this. But never once does the Bible call it fellowship. And so I encourage you, yes, I know, that if we're sharing in a meal, that English word fellowship would apply. But if we're going to use that word, we must not think that remotely, when you and I are gathered together for a meal, when we were at the Harrison's house last night, however many of you made it, that was awesome, it was fun, we were spending time together, but let's not remotely believe that we were devoting ourselves to what the people in Acts 2.42 were devoting themselves to in fellowship. Because that's not what the Bible talks about when it talks about the fellowship to which the church was devoted. Not one single time. Would you like to see some of the passages that describe Bible fellowship? The fellowship that the church devotes itself to? Look at Romans 15 and verse 26. Romans 15 and verse 26. Paul says, for Macedonia and Achaia had been pleased to make a contribution to the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. The Greek word that is elsewhere translated fellowship is used here for contribution. It's a sharing. That's the fellowship they were devoting themselves to in Acts chapter 2. Because you read on down in Acts chapter 2, and what did they do? They were selling all they had, laying it at the apostles' feet and taking care of one another. That fellowship in Acts chapter 2 that they were devoting themselves to is actually the collection. That's what he's referring to. As they were giving of their means to support the work of the church and to support the brethren. That's the share. That's the partnership that's used here. Look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we find the only reference in all the Bible where the term fellowship is used and it's related to eating. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 16, it says, Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Yours may say communion. That's the word for fellowship. Sharing, communion, fellowship. What's it talking about us eating? Hamburgers and hot dogs? It's talking about this right here. Communion. Fellowship as we share in the memorial meal of the body and blood of Christ. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 5. Excuse me, chapter 1 and verse 5. In Philippians chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul writes to the church at Philippi. He talks about, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. The word for participation there, that's the word for fellowship. What's he talking about? He's talking about the fact that the Philippian church gave to Paul 
and supported him in his work of evangelism. Therefore, they were sharing in that work of evangelism. They were in fellowship in that work of evangelism. They were participating in it. That's Bible fellowship. Let's just look at one more. 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. In 1 John chapter 1 and verse 3, John says, What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And then we find in verse 6, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In verse 7, But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. The fellowship talks about our joint relationship that we have in Christ, that we share at all times. So what do we find in the New Testament when it talks about fellowship and the fellowship to which a church was devoted? Do we talk about fellowship halls? Do we talk about fellowship meals? Do we talk about fellowship groups? Absolutely not. We talk about Christians sharing in the work of Christ, in the worship of Christ, in the spreading of the gospel and taking care of the benevolent needs of saints. And that's it. Yes, I know. I know the word fellowship as its definition can be used in all manner of areas. But in the Bible, when it talked about the fellowship, the sharing that a congregation has, and sponsored, and provided, and planned, and paid for, it all had to do with the work and the work of the church and the worship of God. And that's it. That's it. And so, of course, we find lots of differences because folks who don't recognize that, what do they do? They allow for the popular modern usage of the word fellowship today to govern how they work. And they start building fellowship halls and having fellowship meals. But that's not the fellowship in Acts 2.42 to which those disciples were devoted. And, brethren, let me, let me just drop out of the sermon for a minute and just say something that, just, that, that concerns me. Because I fear that even we might be crossing the line on this issue. I have to tell you, when we have groups that get together to play games and it's announced as Christians getting together for fellowship, that's not what the Bible is talking about. When we have groups that are organized and we call them fellowship groups and some of them do nothing more than get together and eat, and shoot the breeze. That's not this fellowship that the Bible talks about. We need to be very careful. Because I'm concerned about that. Can we have groups that get together, that study and help one another, and fellowship in Christ, and learn from one another? Absolutely. If those groups decide to do it, as individuals, they can sponsor something at their home, and individuals can, can fix a meal, and find the groups get together and do their spiritual fellowship, that's fine. The churches are not about the business or should not be about the business of sponsoring, paying for, providing, or planning the social, secular fellowship and fun. Our job is to teach. Our job is to get the gospel out. And I think we need to take, very, take a lot of care in what we're doing and making sure that we're sticking with the Bible pattern. Otherwise, we might end up differing with where we've been. I just think we need to take care. What are the differences? 
There are differences in churches. We have differences regarding authority and how to establish it. We've got differences regarding what the work of the church is. We've got differences regarding the worship of the church. We've got differences regarding the organization of the church. We've got differences regarding the idea of fellowship to which the church ought to be devoted. And because of these things, all manner of practical differences have come up, some which divide us because we cannot be joint participators in error and in false worship and in false work. And so it's divided us. It's sad. But it's happened from the beginning. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 knew that divisions would come. And he said in verse 18 that divisions would come in order to demonstrate who was approved. How do we know who's approved? We go back to the Bible and we look at what's authorized. And those who are doing that are approved. And those who aren't are not. Brethren, I understand that it's a growth process. I know that we're growing. I would not be so arrogant as to say that we do everything right. I'm sure we have to learn and grow and change and do things differently. I do every church. And so I'm not about to stand up as a judge and start describing who's going to heaven and who's going to hell based on where they are on growth. I'm going to leave that up to God. But I am going to say this, that as we know the Bible, we cannot be joint participators in error. And we cannot be joint participators in what we know to be false worship, false work of the church. We need to be joint participators in the truth.